This is Something for the Pain, a podcast produced by Project Echo Idaho, made for Idaho's healthcare professionals working to prevent, treat, and facilitate recovery from opioid and substance use disorders throughout the GEM state. I'm your host, Sam Steffen. Well, the E stands for extensions, looking where we aim to be. CH is for community health care, the welfare of you and me. O is for the outcomes, that's the story we can tell. ECHO all together, well, you know what that spells. Echo Today's episode features a presentation by Rachel Root, a psychologist certified in perinatal mental health at Treasure Valley Psychology in Boise on the topic of perinatal anxiety disorders. This lecture was recorded on June 9th, 2021 as a part of Echo Idaho's Perinatal Substance Use Disorder series. Here to introduce today's presenter is Echo Idaho's former director and session facilitator, Lachelle Smith. Welcome to Echo Idaho Perinatal Substance Use Disorder. I'm Lachelle Smith. Um, we'll facilitate the conversation today. Today, we're really pleased to have um, Echo panelist Dr. Rachel Root give the talk about perinatal anxiety disorders. And uh, Rachel, if you will remind us who you are and you have the floor. Thank you. I'm Rachel Root. I am a psychologist at Treasure Valley Psychology in Boise, specialized mostly in working with the perinatal population in an outpatient setting. So, so excited to talk about perinatal anxiety. I love, love, love talking about this topic. Learning objectives for the day, hoping to go through an overview of perinatal anxiety disorders, discuss the effects of untreated perinatal anxiety disorders, hopefully introduce some helpful screening tools for you, um, and then discuss a few treatment options. An important distinction to remember is that that perinatal period actually spans all the way from pregnancy, so from conception to at least the first year after giving birth. So we really, when we're talking about perinatal mental health, it's really within that entire window. This window, the perinatal period also happens to be the highest incidence of mental health intervention across a woman's lifespan. So it's a very critical window where we really want to make sure that we're taking care of um, our patients. Um, so we have been talking a lot in the last couple talks about PMADs. Those are perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Um, those include depression, uh, perinatal bipolar, anxiety and panic disorder, perinatal OCD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and then postpartum psychosis as well. One, I think, important thing to note uh, clinically when you're seeing a patient, if you're lucky enough to see someone before they um, become pregnant, is that um, we see an increase in individuals that have severe PMS and PMDD. They tend to be at a higher risk for developing PMAD. So we want to keep an extra close eye on those folks and those individuals as they're going through their reproductive journey. And then important to note too, I always plug this into my presentations because I think it's just really fascinating. And I think it's important to remember um, that PMADs are the number one most common medical complication related to childbearing, right? The number one most common medical complication. We always talk about these other things that we screen for a lot, like gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, gestational diabetes. Those rates are much lower than PMADs, much lower than the perinatal mood and anxiety disorder. So we definitely want to make sure that we're looking at um, any of these mental health components as well. So just to go over a few of the perinatal anxiety disorders, we've got the 
Generalized anxiety, there's not a real clinical distinction here um, in the perinatal period, but generalized anxiety, it looks pretty similar to how it does outside of the perinatal period. Some of the, the key clinical um, kind of gems that I look at when I'm trying to determine GED or, you know, the generalized anxiety I try to look at it in three different spheres. One is cognitive. So the cognitive components that I usually look for for generalized anxiety is that anxious rumination, right? You will hear patients saying, I just can't turn my brain off. Um, and so that anxious rumination is the, is one of the cognitive clinical components there. Um, also, I look at the physiological component. That's that physical hyperarousal. Some of our patients will find that heart racing, um, clammy hands, just that, that sympathetic nervous system activation. And then third, I will look at a behavioral component. Um, and the most common behavioral component with generalized anxiety is anxiety-driven avoidance behaviors, right? So if you have a patient who's saying, I just can't turn my brain off, I'm worrying about all these things, it's anxious rumination, and they start avoiding social gatherings or they start avoiding certain things um, because they're trying to just not feel anxious, that can be a big component as well. Also behaviorally, we want to look at sleep. Those with generalized anxiety typically have some sleep disturbance going on as well. Um, a lot of the I can't turn my brain off happens at night when you're trying to get to sleep, which is not helpful for anyone and particularly not helpful for the perinatal population. Um, with new moms, it seems like a silly question to ask in your, when screening. So how are you sleeping? It's a funny question and, and I get a lot of chuckles and I know the answer is going to be not well, right? You have a newborn at home um, and you're not sleeping well, or you're at the end of your pregnancy and you're peeing every 15 minutes. It seems like your sleep is going to be disturbed anyway. But my big screener question with sleep is when everyone else is asleep, when it's nighttime and the house is quiet and baby's asleep and other children are asleep and, and you have the availability to sleep, are you sleeping? That's the big question that I ask that I try to kind of tease out the sleep disturbance just from having a newborn and the sleep disturbance that might come from generalized anxiety. Um, with panic, panic is just those episodes of really extreme anxiety that usually comes out of nowhere. And with true panic, people often, uh, they think something's very wrong. It's very, very, very scary. People will often take themselves to the hospital um, because they think they're either having a heart attack or they're having a stroke. And it, some of the symptoms can mimic some of those things. And so with that, we, a lot of times just talk about active acceptance, active acceptance being that, you know, panic attacks although they are wildly uncomfortable or not inherently physically dangerous, you will, you know, it will run its course. And as long as we can, you know, keep ourselves safe in the meantime, it will go away at some point. So just kind of giving it the space to do what it's going to do um, sometimes can create a shorter panic period. So perinatal OCD, um, this is near and dear to my heart. This is one of the, I think, most misunderstood of the PMADs because it looks a little different. It has a little bit of a different flavor in that perinatal period than OCD outside of that. It's important to note that perinatal women are at a one and a half to two times greater risk than the general population of developing OCD. And one of the key markers for perinatal OCD are intrusive and repetitive horribly disturbing thoughts, usually of harm coming to the baby. Um, and a lot of times those thoughts of harm coming to the baby are images of the mom themselves harming the baby. Um, and that's really one of the key clinical markers for perinatal OCD. 
Also, there's a lot of guilt and shame that goes along with this. These moms are horrified and really disturbed by these thoughts. And then they develop, that's the O part, the obsessive part, these obsessive thoughts that come up. But then often they will develop compensatory um, behaviors to prevent that specific harm from happening. This is the mom that comes into your office. And usually this is a very difficult conversation for them to have. A lot of moms don't want to talk about these thoughts because they're afraid that they are crazy. They are afraid that you are going to take their children away because they're afraid that it means that they're a danger to their children, um, which we know it doesn't, right? Thoughts are not behaviors, but these thoughts are happening and they're so horrified by them that they often will not talk about it. Um, so this is where you really want to ask these questions. Don't be afraid to ask, you know, hey, sometimes you know, a lot of times moms, new moms particularly will um, talk about these kind of thoughts or images that come up that are really scary and images of things happening to their baby. Um, is that something that's ever happened with you? So normally that a little bit and inviting that mom to open up to you. You've got to ask the questions about the thoughts because a lot of moms will not share them with you for fear of being judged. And because that shame and guilt is strong. But these are the moms that, you know, if they divulge that information to you, they have images of their baby's neck snapping or falling down the stairs and crushing the baby or throwing them over a bridge or something like that. These horribly, horribly distressing images um, that these moms have. And so these thoughts are really plaguing. So we really want to try and bring that to light, discuss these thoughts, invite mom to talk about these thoughts. The differential diagnosis here that's really important is between perinatal OCD and postpartum psychosis. There are a lot of horribly distressing thoughts in postpartum psychosis, but in perinatal OCD, moms are horrified by these thoughts. They're very distressing. They don't identify with the thoughts. With postpartum psychosis, typically the moms, they're egocentric, right? So moms will more identify with the thoughts, believe the thoughts, it becomes a part of their reality. Um, but with perinatal OCD, those thoughts are ego Stomach, uh, meaning they reject that thought as being a part of their own, um, but also fear that it means that there's something lurking inside of them that will cause them to actually do this behavior. Um, because their particular images of crushing the baby on the stairs, they bring the whole nursery downstairs or they haven't gone upstairs in a long time. So you see these behaviors that are functionally limiting start to develop because of these thoughts in a frantic attempt to protect the baby from that happening, right? These are all markers, clinical markers of perinatal OCD, really, really important to pick up on. So let's talk a little bit about PTSD in the perinatal period, unfortunately common. Pregnancy, labor, delivery, all of that. So having a newborn, your life changing, um, identity shifts, all of these things are very, very, can be very, very traumatic for an individual. The symptoms of PTSD in the perinatal period are the same as the symptoms outside of the perinatal period. So I won't belabor that, but you will see a lot of things that are involved in childbearing that are potentials for trauma, um, whether that's an emergency C-section, a premature birth, uh, an infant that comes to the NICU, very high incidence of um, PTSD. 
forceps or vacuum extraction, lacerations, just a traumatic birth or an infant loss. Um, interestingly, the number one PTSD inciting event on this list is the use of vacuum extraction. That tends to be pretty traumatic just in that sometimes the vacuum can come off. And a lot of moms will report that their brain went in a very dark place there. And they were thinking that, you know, the baby was in distress and that the baby was harmed in that. And so there you see that pretty often as well. So birth trauma is something we want to talk about, just like the the thoughts that come up with perinatal OCD. We want to bring these things to light. We don't want them to fester inside mom because it's just going to get worse. We want to talk about it. We want to bring it to light. We want to ask about it. We also want to ask about birth trauma with dads, right? A lot of dads can experience birth trauma. If mom's having a hard time and she gets rushed to an emergency C-section, a lot of times you will hear dads talk about, I didn't know what was going on. Everybody was talking over around me. Nobody was talking to me. And all of a sudden she was gone and I was left and I was standing there and you will see, you will hear those stories and it's very traumatic for dad. They don't know if mom's okay. They don't know if baby's okay. Um, So we want to involve dads in this conversation as well. So the birth trauma is really any event that's occurring during the labor and delivery process that involves either an actual or threatened um, serious injury or death to the mother or the infant. Um, We see about a 34% incidence of moms um, endorsing a traumatic birth experience. This is not only in medical emergencies, right? There are a lot of themes that go into trauma in the birthing situation. A lot of times when moms feel invisible, they don't feel heard or they don't feel involved in the process um, or they asked for something and their wishes were not respected, feeling like their rights were taken away or their voice was taken away. A lot of those things can be incredibly traumatic, especially in a labor and delivery room. And I think that there are things that we as providers can do and can think about um, in service of trauma-informed care to make sure that that's not happening. One thing that I've seen pretty commonly with moms is the idea of being talked about and not being talked to by their medical providers. I I hear that theme a lot. And I have a lot of moms who come into and a lot of parents that come into my office and they're very disturbed by the fact that there were, you know, many medical professionals literally on either side of them talking over them about them, but no one was talking to them, or at least it was their experience that view that no one was talking to them. And I think we all know that in an emergent situation, sometimes that has to happen. But if we can keep this in the forefront of our mind, maybe sometimes we can decrease that trauma that happens with just that that lack of communication. Some of the residual effects from a traumatic birth experience can be impaired bonding with baby and mom. Sometimes it can create an avoidance of aftercare, especially if it had anything to do with the care that they received. Again, PTSD can emerge in partners and dads. Sexual dysfunction can occur afterwards. A lot of times you will hear patients very hesitant to have subsequent pregnancies, even if beforehand they had wanted all the babies, that they're afraid to go through that again. And then a recurrence and exacerbation of mental health struggles in future pregnancies. And these moms are typically more likely to have an elective C-section in subsequent pregnancies. 
So some of the effects, and this is important to understand as well, I know we've talked a lot here about that risk reward model that we do. And this is so important that we not only think about what are the risks of treating some of these things? What are the risks of treating a pregnant mom or a breastfeeding mom for their depression or for their anxiety? And I think what we really need to be looking at equally is what are the potential drawbacks and what are the effects of not treating it? Because there are effects. So in pregnancy, some of the effects of untreated anxiety can be increased cortisol levels in the fetus, disruption of that developing brain circuitry, and also the hormone systems in the fetus. There is a risk for preterm birth, shortened gestational age, and low birth weight. In the postpartum period, some of those effects that we see are um, increases in sleep disturbance in moms. And we all know that new moms above all else need as much sleep as they can get. There is an increased risk of developing OCD. That generalized anxiety can often blossom into that perinatal OCD if not treated. Fertility issues can arise through untreated anxiety. There are some risks for baby as well, including that increased fight or flight activation in babies and that increased startle response. We will see some increased difficulty in learning new tasks, can see an increased anxiety and fear in babies, infants, and children. Um, Sometimes these babies are harder to soothe and there can be a persistent elevation of cortisol. That persistent elevation of cortisol could disrupt some of the developing brain structures. So what can we do about this? Screening is really important. The question of who can screen, really anybody, anybody who has access to mom can screen. Anybody who has access to partner or dad can screen. My favorite screener tool, and I know we've talked about this before, is the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale. This can also pick up perinatal anxiety as well, both in pregnancy and in postpartum. So it's a really, really good tool. It's in a lot of different languages. It's free. And so it's a good one to use. There was a study that was done in 2000 of 391 women in an outpatient OB clinic, and they were looking at how well the screening using the EPDS worked. And when they did this study, the rate of detection of postpartum depression using the EPDS was 35.4%, and the rate of spontaneous detection of postpartum depression was 6.3%. Okay, so a little bit about treatment, sleep. Sleep is potentially one of the very best and first line defense for postpartum anxiety, anxiety in pregnancy, um, any of those PMATs, really, really important sleep, sleep, sleep. I am a broken record with my patients about sleep. How are you sleeping? What are you doing with your partner? How are you working out sleep? Is it all on you? Are they helping? Are you doing it in shifts? How can we strategize this? Um, It's really important. We also want to encourage women to talk about their thoughts and talk about their experiences. Some of this can be uncomfortable, um, especially with those really scary thoughts and those really disturbing thoughts. It can be uncomfortable to talk about. It's certainly uncomfortable for mom to talk about, but mom needs a space to be able to share these thoughts and get them out. So we as providers can normalize these thoughts and say thoughts are not actions. We know that thoughts are not actions. And you having these thoughts is that chemical misfire that's happening. It doesn't mean that there's a monster lurking inside of you. And especially with perinatal OCD and those types of thoughts of harm coming to the baby, those events almost never actually happen. So reassuring mom that if we can manage this chemical misfire, we can get this under control and she won't be plagued with these thoughts anymore. And also encouraging patients to talk about their traumatic experiences, whether that was in pregnancy, in labor and delivery or afterward. 
Social support is really, really important. Um, that comes in a lot of different varieties of venues. Peer support, um, psychoeducational groups. I know a lot of the hospital systems have these in place, whether it's Zoom or in person, there's a lot of information on those out there. Mother infant therapy and education. And then I think taking a really good inventory of functional, informational, and emotional supports. So that's when I'll talk with, uh, with parents about about literally listing out who are your functional supports in your life. These are the people who are going to help you with the stuff. Who's going to bring you food? Who's going to help you at night with the baby? Is there a teenager down the street who mows your lawn? Like these are all functional supports that can help. Let's inventory those and let's reach out. Informational supports. That is a few trusted information resources, not all of the internet, not what I typically suggest, um, but a few trusted resources there, whether that's your pediatrician, your OB for your care, um, you know, a, a, a book that you really like. And then there's emotional supports. Who are the people that you can go to and talk to? Who are the people who you feel free um, to speak about the struggles and not be judged and not feel like you have to put it on and be the Pinterest mom and everything is fine. And I'm enjoying every moment, which is absolutely impossible. And so inventorying those supports can be really, really helpful. Psychotherapeutic approaches that are useful with anxiety disorders, cognitive behavioral therapy is very helpful. Acceptance and commitment therapy can be very helpful. Interpersonal therapy, a lot of changes going on, some grief going on in the perinatal period even loss of identities and things like that. Uh, motivational interviewing as well seems to work really well with this population. We want to make sure that we can adhere to providing trauma-informed care in our clinics and in our hospitals. And then medication considerations. I think it's important to model as a behavioral health specialist that even though this isn't what we do, this isn't our zone, it's important to understand this piece as well because we're trying to help these patients um, in a collaborative fashion. Um, so I know a lot of our uh, my very, very lovely medical colleagues um, have have talked about this. So just to reiterate that we use kind of that risk versus reward model. Um, we want to look at both the exposure and risk of either option here because exposure and risk are inevitable in both treatment and illness state, right? So we want to look at what those are. Um, and understanding that most critical window typically in the perinatal period is between 36 weeks of gestation and four weeks postpartum, right? When all of that hormone stuff seems to be surging the most. Just to reiterate what we've heard before, um, even as a behavioral health provider, it's important to understand that there are some clinical guidelines when we are supporting medication usage. We may not be providing the medication treatment, but we can support it, right? So a lot of times if things aren't working, we try not to change it. Um, there's a 50 to 75% chance of relapse after discontinuing medications when pregnant. And we do want to maximize our non-pharmacological interventions as a first-line defense whenever we can. You know, talking about not changing things up if we don't have to and making sure that we're referring patients to the right people to talk about medications with their treatment. So just to sum up what we talked about today, again, remembering that that perinatal period is all the way from conception to the, at least the first year after the birth of the baby. There are untreated effects and risks for perinatal both mood and anxiety disorders. And oftentimes those will outweigh the risks of treatment. So keeping someone or facilitating someone staying in that disease state or that illness state can oftentimes be much riskier to them and to the baby than the risks of treatment. So we're really want to look at that risk versus reward. 
thorough screening is key and thankfully it's really easy, right? So hopefully we can be using this in a lot of different arenas. Um, consulting with other professionals whenever possible. We try to take a collaborative approach anytime that we can, especially when there are several different providers treating the same person for the same thing. We want to try and collaborate when possible. And then the other thing to remember, these disorders are, they're absolutely treatable. I see patients get so much better. They come in with this, you know, crippling anxiety and and we're able to see them get to a better place. So with treatment, um, you know, telling patients that they can be well again and they will be well again, as long as we can get this to the right place and with the right support, that they can feel better. After an Echo Sessions didactic presentation like we just heard from Dr. Root, we opened the floor to all attendees that Zoomed in to participate in that day's Echo Idaho session. We'll now hear some highlights from that conversation, including three of the Perinatal Substance Use Disorder Series panelists, Jerry Woodworth, Nicole Fox, and Allison Smith. Thank you, Rachel. So good. Um, I want to get one question in from the chat and then let others get to it. Um, the EPDS for dads or partners, can we use the same scale? Are there that or partner specific skills. Can you speak to that, Rachel? I believe so. Jerry, does that sound right? Yeah, the EPDS is validated for use in dads. This is Jerry Woodworth, OB nurse at St. Luke's Health System in Boise. The cutoff for dads is lower than for moms, so it's um, two points lower, so but eight would be a cutoff. Yeah, we'd probably want to look a little bit into, like Jerry said, with with the cutoffs, cutoffs for mom were typically at 10 for a referral, um, that there may be some mental health stuff going on there. Thank you. And Haley's noting, um, nursing people aren't going to have a hard time sleeping. So knowing that that's first line, do you have tools or tips or strategies, Rachel, or anyone to support sleep? There's so many. I mean, I think it's kind of a personal thing too, because a lot of new parents do it differently, right? There's just a lot of ways to do it right. And there's only like a handful of ways to like really, really, really mess it up. Um, So I think it just depends on working closely with your patient and talking with them about, you know, you come at a new parent, you say, this is how you got to do it. It doesn't come across very well. And I think working with them and saying, what works for you? What's not working for you? How can we tweak these things a little bit at a time? You know, I have a lot of patients who do really well with some kind of shift system with their partner, if that's available to them, but some, for some families that just doesn't work. So it depends on if they're exclusively breastfeeding, if they're, you know, there's just so many factors. I think you have to really take into consideration and build a model that works for that parent, but really, really talk about it and try and strategize it in little changes at a time. Thank you for that. Any other questions from the group? I'm assuming that, I mean, since you said that with moms, the self-reporting is pretty low. Speaking here is an echo participant, Haley Brown. I'm assuming even probably more so with the Mills, you know, talking about having depression or having PTSD from birth experiences. How do you kind of talk to dads to kind of elicit, you know, answers from them of whether or not they've been experiencing PTSD from the birth? 
Yeah. I mean, similarly to how I would, you know, really with anybody, I, I think the biggest key here is asking the question. I think what happens a lot is once the baby's born, everybody like so, so much of the focus goes to baby. And then like whatever's left over goes to mom. And then if there's any even second thought, right, like dads get very kind of lost in the fray. Um, and so when there's a traumatic birth with mom and, and the partner was there, it's almost kind of my assumption that there's going to be something to talk about, not necessarily that they're automatically going to develop PTSD, but that they're, they experienced a traumatic birth as well. So I think just having that conversation, acknowledging and validating for the partner that like, Hey, I bet that was really hard for you too. I bet that was really scary to have, you know, your partner and your child wheeled out of the room and not to not know what was going on. And, and, and just acknowledging that I think is really helpful. Um, if they are not, you know, coming to you for that, I think just asking the question can open it up. Thank you for that. Dr. Fox, what insights do you have to share? I think our society is very baby focused. This is Dr. Nicole Fox, psychiatrist at St. Luke's Health System in Boise. And sometimes we just forget about mom and we definitely forget about dad. Um, So we have to always keep in mind that the dyad, the typically the mother and baby dyad bond matters so much in that child's development that actually in order to be child-centric as we are in our society, the best way to ensure the welfare of the child is to ensure the welfare of the mother or father or a primary guardian. Thank you for that. And Allison, do you have any insights of what, how you incorporate some of the things we've been talking about with your patients? You know, I think um, just remembering that, I think what Rachel was talking about around guilt and anxiety This is Dr. Allison Smith speaking here. Dr. Smith is a family medicine physician and addiction medicine specialist and the director of mental health at Delta Airlines. Being just kind of a universal feeling for new moms, um, adding in the layer of a substance use disorder on top of that obviously compounds it a whole lot um, because you, you it's not just the judgment that you're putting on yourself, it's the judgment that's coming from other people as well that you're having to, to cope with. Um, and so if you, you know, already recognize it as a weakness of yours to be screening for and looking out for um, anxiety, perinatal um, postpartum anxiety disorders, um, remember to, to um, make a bigger effort to do it for your patients with substance use disorders as well. Thank you for that. Thanks all. Thank you, Rachel, that was so great. That again was Rachel Root presenting Perinatal Anxiety Disorders. That lecture was recorded live as a part of Echo Idaho's 2021 Perinatal Substance Use Disorder Series. If you'd like to watch the Zoom recording of that presentation, that video is currently available on the Echo Idaho YouTube channel, which you can access through our website. The PowerPoint slide deck, as well as information about how to contact some of the organizations and services mentioned in that talk, are available in our podcast show notes on our podcast webpage, www.uidaho.edu slash echo hyphen podcast. If you're interested in joining our free live echo sessions to receive continuing education credit, learn best practices, ask a question, or grow your community, please visit our website at www.uidaho.edu echo.
where you can register to attend, sign up to receive announcements, donate, and find out more information about our programs. Season 2 of Something for the Pain is brought to you by Echo Idaho, supported by the Whammy Medical Education Program and the University of Idaho, and is made possible with funding provided by BJA, the Bureau of Justice Assistance. Echo also want to hear your feedback. We welcome your questions, comments, and suggestions, and invite you to email us at echoidaho at uidaho.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to Something for the Pain using your podcast app. And if you have a moment, write us a review. Something for the Pain was supported by grant number 15PBJA21GG04557COAP, awarded by the Bureau of Justice Assistance. The Bureau of Justice Assistance is a component of the Department of Justice's Office of Justice Programs, which also includes the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the National Institute of Justice, the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, the Office for Victims of Crime, and the SMART Office. Points of view or opinion in this recording are those of the author and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice. You can earn CE credit while you sit and eat your lunch. The contributing voices on today's episode were those of Rachel Root, Jerry Woodworth, Nicole Fox, Allison Smith, Haley Brown, and Lachelle Smith. We'd also like to thank all of our listeners without whom none of this would be possible. Without you, we'd just be talking to ourselves. You know what that smells.